calling that we're, we're considering something which is beyond us we're considering the, the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ in his final hours and this is surely holy ground that we, we walk upon and the more I consider the, the level of righteousness and the level of response which is required of me in response to what he has done for me I feel a sense of inadequacy to even start to talk about these things and yet they're there to be talked about and they're there to be thought about perhaps you can enter into how I personally feel about that in your own experience so as we know there are seven sayings of the Lord Jesus and I'm sorry I don't have a handout but there they are the first point I'd, I'd like, uh, like you to observe from that is that if you read these in the Greek text, you will see that the number of words decreases. That first saying, which as we'll see, was said when he first hung on the cross, took 12, 12 words in the Greek text. The next one, said sometime later, is nine words. And then, woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother, he says to John, five words. Number four, my God, my God, four words. Then. I thirst is one word, it is finished, one word. And then finally, you get this final outburst of eight words, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now what does that indicate? Well it indicates surely that as time went on in those final hours in which he hung there, speaking became more and more difficult. The number of words that he used went down. Until at last, at the end, you get this final cry of triumph, which it would appear sapped all the energy that he had, and he, he ceased life uh, immediately after saying that. Now, the point that I'm trying to make is that the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ both carrying his cross and hanging on the cross is the picture or the image of a man who found it increasingly difficult to carry on. When he spoke to the disciples and to us, we read it in that chapter in Matthew 16, about taking up your cross and following me, the import of that to the first century mind would have been a far, far more horrific, I guess, than it is to our mind. The picture, as I say, of a man carrying the cross is the picture of a man who finds it increasingly difficult to carry on. The Lord Jesus asks us to pick up the cross in that sense. So the result of that, and we're going to come back to this theme a number of times, is that as we grow spiritually, as we go through our lives, in a sense, life gets more difficult. The carrying of the cross gets more difficult. And yet, as Paul says, and we'll come to this later, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so, he says, so the consolation, the comfort also abound in And so, in a sense, it gets more difficult. And yet, in a sense, the comfort and the certainty gets more and more. There's many of you here who know the truth of that, over many years, far more than I do. And yet, there it is, in the experience of the Lord Jesus, I suggest, in this very issue of the, uh, this very subject of the seven last sayings, that he, you can see it getting more and more difficult for him, until, as we see, he progresses to a climax in that last statement, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, I would suggest that, as a community, and no doubt in our own private lives, we, we lack a sense of the Lord Jesus Christ as the absolute central object of our devotions and the, the central object of our, our emotions the, the centrality of Christ if I could uh, use that adjective or the, the, the supremacy of Christ uh, as it is portrayed in the New Testament epistles is something which uh, perhaps we, as a community and individually we've not appreciated as, as we might have done 
Um, and this is the whole message of the New Testament, to have the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in his time of dying, particularly in his time of dying, absolutely central in our minds. And this is why we have the courage to, to try to think about these, these seven sayings of the Lord Jesus. So we'll start with the, the first one, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now as you'll see, they were the first words that the Lord Jesus said as he hung on the cross. That chronology that's uh, on the table is the one we'll be using, and that's, I don't think there's any real question that that is the order of, of, the, of the sayings. It's the same in all the uh, parallel uh, um, layouts of the, of the Gospels. So the very first words that he said were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, it seems from how that's recorded in Luke 23 that that is what Christ said almost as soon as he was crucified. So we have the picture of the Lord Jesus being laid down on the cross horizontally and then the cross being lifted up into a vertical position and dropped down into the hole prepared for it. And then he says these words. Now it's been suggested to me by no more no less than a Catholic priest that in fact that would have been the greatest time of shock and pain for Lord Jesus when for the first time his body came to rest with its full weight upon the nails and as they would have started to tear into his flesh in the hands and in the feet it was then that his nervous system would have begun first of all to react fully it was then that there would have been the, the greatest pain and shock physically and yet in perhaps that, that worst time of physical shock and nervousness, what is the first thing he says? Father, forgive them. Said at the most painful time, at the time when his nervous system was, was first responding to that terrible pain. You know, of course, in that, there's a matchless example, isn't there? To be so concerned for the salvation of others, so taken up with the desire to show love to those who hate us, but the physicality of our own sufferings just becomes put to one side. It's not to say that he didn't feel it. Of course not. Of course he was feeling that. And of course we feel the pain of whatever we're going through in our lives. But the point is that in the midst of that greatest physical pain, he showed the supreme spiritual pinnacle to say, Father, forgive them. Now, perhaps this study will be our most uh, expositional study, and I, I hope it won't put you off, but we come to this old, old chestnut, I suppose. Well, who was Jesus asking God to forgive? Some people would say it was the Jews, some people would say it was the Romans. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, to try to work out who he's talking about, let's first of all eliminate who he can't be talking about. You may remember just a few, hour, <clears throat> a few hours before he actually said that. In John 17 verse 9, he said to his father, I do not pray for the world. I don't pray for the world. Rather alluding perhaps to those words in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is told to pray not for this people. Don't pray for them. And so... I think we should bear that in mind. Now primarily I guess he was talking about the Jewish world, although I see no reason why he wasn't also talking about the, the Roman world. Now let's first of all consider the, the Romans. Was he saying, Father forgive these Roman soldiers because they don't know what they're doing? Well, we know that forgiveness is related to repentance. 
And there would seem to me little point in Christ praying for the Roman soldiers to be forgiven. It would be rather like one of us driving around late at night and you see some youths vandalising a bus shelter. Or you wouldn't say, oh Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It wouldn't be an appropriate thing to ask because they're not repenting, they're not even aware what they were doing is particularly wrong perhaps. And so I, I personally can't see that Christ would have just prayed for someone to be forgiven even when they hadn't repented and when they were relatively uninterested in, in what they were doing. It seems to me they were, those men were just doing a job. Now biblically we get some guidance on this because in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 God seems to say who he thinks was responsible for the death of Christ. In Acts 2 verse 23 Peter under inspiration is talking to the Jews and he says about Jesus, Acts 2.23 Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye, this is the Jews, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So he says, your hands, your Jewish hands, crucified Christ. Now the physical hands who manhandled him onto the cross were of course the Romans. And yet it would appear that in the eyes of God it was ultimately the Jews who were responsible. And as we know, it's the Jewish nation that's been punished, not the Roman nation, for what they did. In Psalms 22 and Psalm 69, those well-known messianic psalms talking about the crucifixion, they talk in some detail about the things that were done to Jesus on the cross. And some of those things were done by the Jews, some by the Romans. And yet, that psalm uses the same pronoun, they. They did this. They gaped at me with their mouths. They crucified me. They stretched my bones, etc., etc. As if in the eyes of God, it was only one group of people who actually did the crucifixion, and that group of people was the, was the Jews. So, it seems to me that Father forgive them wasn't said about the Roman soldiers. So then was it said about the Jewish nation? You remember that parable when Jesus describes how the son comes to the vineyard? It's in Matthew 21 verse 38. And the Jews, the keepers of the vineyard say, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Now that sounds to me like they knew, they did realise who he was. It's Matthew 21, verse 38. Think of John 7, verse 28. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. The saying is powerful. They said, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. When he said, you both know me, and you know whence I am, of course he's alluding to the memorial name. He talk, uses I am seven times in John's Gospel, which again would indicate that he was alluding to it. It's as if he's saying, you know my divine origin. You know that I'm manifesting the Father's name. Now when he says, you both know me, and you know whence I am, in John's Gospel, whenever Christ talks about somebody knowing him, he really means somebody understanding him. Somebody appreciating him. So he's saying, you appreciate me, you know who I am. Now in John 8, Jesus says three times some words. John 8, 21 and 24. He says, well in fact we could look at those. John 8, 21. 
Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye Jews shall seek me, and shall die in your sins, whither I go, ye cannot come. Verse 24. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Christ is saying, if you repent, then you'll be forgiven. But if you don't repent, then you will die in your sins. Now, I cannot reconcile that with Jesus saying on the cross, about the Jews, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It seems they did know what they did. And it seems to me that um, here Jesus is saying, unless you repent, you can't be forgiven. So I find it difficult to think that they could be forgiven just because Jesus prayed for them, even without their repentance. So then, who is he talking about when he says, Father, forgive them? I think those words are kind of alluded to in an indirect way in Acts chapter 3, verse 17. Remember Jesus said, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. Acts 3, 17, Peter says, And now, brethren, I wot that through, or the RV has in, I wot that in ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. Verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So he says, I know that you did this in ignorance. Therefore, repent and you'll be forgiven. And of course these Jews did. So I would suggest that when Christ said on the cross, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. I think how we should read that, it's only a suggestion, is that he was saying, Father, forgive them because they don't now appreciate what they do. But he knew that there were some Jews who were going to repent of what they were doing. And I think Christ was aware of that. He knew that at least a minority would accept him. So he was saying, Father, forgive them, because they don't know now what they're doing. They don't appreciate what they're doing, but forgive them, because he knew that in the future they would repent. And this, of course, is the power of what Peter's saying. He says, look, brethren, I know that you didn't know what you were doing. I know that you did this in ignorance. Now, therefore, repent and be forgiven, because Christ prayed that you be forgiven. So, that minority of Jews who repented and were converted and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ were those, I'd suggest, who Christ was praying for when he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they do. And yet, those people are, in a sense, us, because Christ came to save Israel, fundamentally. God sent forth his Son to redeem them that were under the law. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Isaiah 53, that's Israel. And it's only if we are in Israel, if we are spiritual Israel, that that hope of salvation is made to us. So then, Christ died to save those in Israel who would repent. He asked God to forgive them, those in Israel who would repent when he was on the cross. And that group, those in Israel who would repent, are spiritual Israel. They include us. Let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 53, because I think there we we actually get this question of who Jesus was praying for uh, clearly answered. Isaiah 53, which as you know is a a prophecy of 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 the cross, every verse. Isaiah 53, verse 12, at the end of the verse. This is talking about at the end of Christ's sufferings. You can actually work out Isaiah 53 as a chronological prophecy of the crucifixion, but we won't do that for the moment. But at the end of it, verse 12, 
it says about the Lord Jesus that he was numbered with the transgressors, he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. On the cross, Isaiah says, Christ made intercession for the transgressors. And I think that is a prophecy of those words of Jesus, Father forgive them, for they know not what they do. He asked for forgiveness for the transgressors, it says here. It says, actually in the record of the crucifixion, he says, Father forgive them, for they don't know what they do. So the them that he asks to be forgiven, I would suggest are these people called here the transgressors. And yet, the transgressors here in Isaiah 53, is us, uh, are us. Verse 4, he hath borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, that's us. We esteemed him stricken. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. It's our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So verse 12, he made intercession for the transgressors. Who are the transgressors? Us. So then when Christ said, Father forgive them, I think he was fulfilling this prophecy. I'm not saying he consciously went out of his way to fulfill it, but I think that is is what was happening. He was asking for the forgiveness of the sins of spiritual Israel. Those in natural Israel who would repent, and us who take on the, the hope of Israel. So that means then, that on the cross, when Christ was saying, Father forgive them, he had in his mind the sins of all of us. The sins of all the ecclesia of God. Father, forgive them. Because they know not, at this time, what they do. Forgive them in advance. That's what he was saying. Think of those words in Romans 5. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And the logic that he brings out there is so powerful. He says, God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. So then, what I'd suggest happened when Christ died on the cross was that the sins of all the ecclesia, and by that I mean the, the believers, the sins of all the ecclesia were forgiven in advance. They were forgiven in prospect. Every one of our committed sins was forgiven in prospect. When he says, Father, forgive them. And that's why Peter says you must repent because this great forgiveness has been made available to you in prospect. All your sins in the future have been blotted out. Now that's why I would submit that the idea that we sin, we rush to God, get forgiven, go away, sin again, come back, get forgiven. We go through this sort of cycle. I'm not sure that's really the way to look at our relationship with God. I'm not saying don't repent. Of course, it's fundamental that we must repent. What I'm saying is that in prospect... All our sins were overcome when Christ died on the cross. Now, of course, if that is... Sorry, and that's why Paul says in Hebrews 10, verse 12, that by one sacrifice, Christ made a sin offering. It only took one. He made one sacrifice for sins forever. And I would suggest that all our sins that we would commit in the future were all forgiven. And yet what we therefore have to do is when we sin is to confess that to God. And we must do that because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. That's exactly what Peter was saying to those Jews. Because of what he said on the cross that he'd forgive you even though then you didn't know what you were doing. Please, he says, come on, you must repent. Think of those words in Ephesians 4.32 where it says Be ye kind to one another, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. 
as if God has forgiven you in prospect. And so he's saying, well, therefore you should forgive each other in the same way as God's forgiven you. And what that means, I would suggest, is that we don't go around demanding each other to repent before we forgive each other because we weren't treated like that. Take a simple example. Let's say one of you loses your temper with me outside. You might swear at me. What do I do? Do I go home thinking, well, I jolly well hope he's going to write a letter to me saying he's sorry about that. Do I phone you up? I'll go and see you say, well, you know what you said to me the other night? Now, of course, if you come down all cool and say, oh, I'm sorry, Duncan, I'm really sorry about that. Well, it's so easy for me to forgive you, isn't it? You've got someone fawning around you saying, oh, I'm really sorry, I really shouldn't have done that. That's the easiest thing in the world to forgive. It's far more difficult if you probably don't see them for another nine months. In your own heart, say, well, I'll put that over here. Repentance or no repentance is not the issue. Let's rather forgive them. Let's put that behind us. Now, we know that that's how we should behave. Because that is how we will, that's how we have been treated, isn't it? Father, forgive them. But said by a man at the height of physical agony, his mind was full of us, his ecclesia, and of our sins, pleading with God to forgive us. Now, in a sense, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was a guilt offering, it seems to me, that in the same way as God required atonement for sin, even if people didn't realise they were sinning under the law. So, in fact, it says it in the NIV in Isaiah 53, Christ made a, a guilt offering. That's why in Hebrews 5, Christ is described as the priest who can have compassion on those who sin through ignorance. That's us. Those who are out of the way because of his sacrifice. And so, there was the Lord Jesus Christ in the height of his physical agony thinking about us I hope you can read that but it seems to me that in some sense the Lord Jesus Christ was aware of us on the cross I don't know whether us personally as individuals or to what level but consider Isaiah 53 verse 10 it's on the screen there when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin or a guilt offering the NIV says he shall see his seed that's us he shall see the result of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied now that would suggest to me that as he was on the cross he had some kind of vision of us and it was that that gave him this element of satisfaction and Psalms 22 and 69, both those psalms have the same structure. You, they start off with the Lord Jesus in agony, crying to God for deliverance and not having any immediate answer. And then he goes on to see a group of people that he calls the great congregation, Ecclesia and the Septuagint, eating in memory of him, serving him, living in Zion, declaring his righteousness to others. So it seems that on the cross he was looking, his mind was swamped with us. On the cross, we're told in Psalm 22, Christ, he says, I saw all my bones. And we're told that we are his bones, members of his body. Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. And set before implies a vision, as if there was a joy that was set in vision before him, which inspired him to endure the cross. He looked forward to pleasures of God's right hand where he's now mediating for us. He looked forward to 
intercessing for us to mediating rather for us to offering our prayers to God now we often may give the impression that Christ died number one to get his own salvation number two to get our salvation and of course it's true that Christ benefited from his own sacrifice and that's the first principle that he he was saved by his own work and yet I don't think that that was the, the number one motivation I don't think he went into the whole thing thinking well how can I save myself and right then we'll sort these other people out afterwards he, Christ died for our sins that is without doubt the biblical emphasis Christ died for our sins and for our redemption Brother Robert says he did it for himself so that it might be for us he did it for himself so that it might be for us and I, I would speculate, and this is only speculation, that if the Lord Jesus had had the attitude that he was going out, number one, for his own salvation, he probably wouldn't have made it. It was because he was dedicated to saving us that he saved himself. And so that, it seems to me, has worked out so often in the Christadelphian experience. Take a very homely example. Dad gets up in the morning and does his readings. In the evening he wants to go to bed. But then he realises that he ought to do one or two readings with the kids. And he battles, well, they don't care if I don't do them with them. Okay, well, I'll do them. By going out for somebody else's salvation, he becomes stronger himself. And I'm sure that's worked between parents and children, husbands and wives, the, 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 uh, the preacher and the, uh, the students, etc., etc., in so many ways. And so then, there was the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross crying out Father forgive them full of us full of an awareness of our need full of an awareness of our sinfulness when his own physical need was so great now that therefore is the motivation surely that we can have to have every confidence in our prayers to God and in our desire for forgiveness because this was his desire the first thing he was thinking about was forgive them, take away their sin Father take it all away and it's been done as I say in prospect for us we're told in Hebrews 5 that the Lord Jesus cried to God with prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears. And as I said, I don't think he was crying out just for his own salvation. The supplications, the mediations, as that really means. The mediations, the prayers that he was making on the cross with strong crying and tears were for our forgiveness. Not just his own salvation. His cries for his own salvation, I would suggest, were made because he knew it was only through his own salvation that we could find forgiveness. Now those words in Hebrews 5 about him groaning on the cross with strong crying and tears, picked up in Romans 8, those well-known words which say that we don't know what to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, the Spirit himself, the Lord Jesus, makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. In other words, there's a connection. It says, Christ now is interceding with groanings that can't be uttered. In the past, when he was on the cross, he was groaning with his strong crying and tears inside him. Now, he's groaning again as he mediates to us, for us. What's the connection indicate? Surely the connection indicates that the same passion that he had on the cross in, in mediating for us then is the same passion that he has now in mediating for us now 
just one final point in passing. He does it, we're told in Romans 8, strong crying and tears with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Lord Jesus Christ is not, as I heard once in a lecture, I'm sure inadvertently said, like a telephone exchange in heaven. He is doing this with strong crying and tears that cannot be uttered. So in fact there is no spoken language in heaven. Have you ever considered that? That the Lord Jesus is not talking to God in language as I'm talking to you. But he's doing it on a completely mental level. With something that cannot be spoken, that cannot be uttered. And that's why I think he's called there the Spirit. It doesn't say Jesus, it says the Spirit. Which is the title of Jesus. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the title of the Lord Jesus. Spirit referring to the mind. uh, As if Christ is not using words in heaven. But that he is on a mental level of contact with God. And that on that mental level, he is groaning to interpret our prayers to God. And we pray easy as anything, don't we? Let's give thanks for the food. Yeah, okay. And yet there's the Lord Jesus in heaven. We go to sleep, don't we, when we're praying. Sure every one of us has done that. Go to sleep when you're praying. And there we read that the Lord Jesus is groaning to intercede for us with these groans that can't be uttered, even beyond language, spoken language isn't enough to, to, to express the intensity of his feeling for us and these are high things that we're thinking about, things which are almost beyond us, but I say almost, because they're there in God's word, so they're not completely beyond us but almost beyond us the hymns we're going to have uh, will try to take our attention away from the cross and yet still fix our mind upon the Lord Jesus Christ I'd like us to sing hymn 98 wake awake for night is flying the watchmen on the heights are crying awake Jerusalem at last midnight hears the welcome voices and at the thrilling cry rejoices come forth ye virgins night is past the bridegroom comes awake your lamps with gladness take hallelujah and for his marriage feast prepare for ye must go to meet him there Listening to the Lord Jesus Christ saying those words was the thief, that's what we'll have to call him, because that's what scripture calls him. There was a man there dying, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest that, in fact, that man is intended to be a type of us. Depends on what what view you take of scripture, but I would suggest that if every word is inspired by God, as we believe, and it's the same spirit behind it, then there must be lots of interconnections between scriptures. Even just one or two words here or there may be alluding to each other, may be connecting up with each other. We find that difficult, perhaps, to appreciate, first of all, because our problem is that we use thousands of words which are redundant, which we don't need to use. We use words as easy as anything. And yet, by, by inspiration, God doesn't do that. God's words are every one meaningful and intended and purposeful. So let's just consider the evidence for what I suggested, that in fact the thief on the cross is intended to be, in some sense, our representative. We're told in Romans 6, an old man is crucified, as you may know, the idea is co-crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are together in the likeness of his death. 
the only man who was crucified with Christ, or the only believer to be crucified with Christ, was of course the thief. Paul says, I am co-crucified with Christ. And he says that his own life was a pattern of, of our life. The Lord Jesus said, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree that is in the midst of the paradise of God. To him that overcometh, Jesus says, I will give the paradise of God. As you may know, that word paradise only occurs three times in the the New Testament, the Greek word. And it really is talking about a perfect garden on the earth, um, an allusion to the Garden of Eden, a reference to the kingdom of God. There is only one other person that Jesus promised the paradise of God to, and that's the thief. I can tell you right now, you'll be with me in paradise, in the kingdom. And so, to me, it doesn't... It can't be incidental that some years later the Lord Jesus says the same words to all those that overcome, to all of you that overcome, you also will enter the paradise of God. Just like he said to the thief, you will be in the paradise. As if he's saying, okay, that thief on the cross that I spoke to years ago is a symbol of all of you people and if you also overcome well you'll get the same reward that I promised him now perhaps the greatest proof to me that that thief was in fact a representative of us is really in Mark 15 where we're told that he was numbered with the transgressors in the context, well in fact we could look at it Mark 15 verse 27 I mean you, you know these words Mark chapter 15 verse 27 and 28 with him they crucified two thieves 28 and the scripture was fulfilled which saith and he was numbered with the transgressors so the fact that Christ was crucified with the thieves fulfilled the scripture in Isaiah 53 as you know that said he was numbered with the transgressors now we've just been looking at that haven't we he was numbered with the transgressors and he made intercession for the transgressors bear the sin of many and we said that the transgressors who Christ made intercession for were us see the sound reasoning but it says that Christ made intercession for the transgressors that's us but he was numbered with the transgressors who were the transgressors? well the thieves in the first instance he made intercession for the transgressors may even be a reference to Christ asking God for the thief to, to be in the kingdom although we don't know that he actually did that and so the transgressors are the thieves in this immediate context and yet according to Isaiah 53 the transgressors are those of us who have been reconciled by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ so therefore those thieves represent us Paul says if we be dead with him we shall also live with him if we suffer with him as the thief did we shall also reign with him if we deny him perhaps as the thief had done earlier he will also deny us if we suffer with Christ who suffered with Christ physically? the thief and who's going to reign with Christ? well we know the thief will for sure just wonder whether Paul had his mind on that thief and was saying well look he's a type, he's a hero if you like for all of us Paul talks about always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh as the sufferings of Christ abound in us so our consolation also abounded. And so, 
again what he's saying is all of us have got to suffer with the Lord Jesus Christ and we know that we can't do that physically it must be in our minds and yet that thief was if you like a little physical representation of all the believers now it's often been pointed out that the thief really believed all our basic doctrines and the point is that he was a Christadelphian hanging there he was without doubt believing what we do he certainly believed in the sinfulness of man we indeed justly it's basically the idea of our view on the devil remember me when you come in your kingdom he knew Christ would come back he knew there would be a judgment he knew there would be a need to be remembered for good in that day so he knew therefore that death was unconsciousness he certainly didn't make any hint that he wanted to be to go to heaven with Jesus this man has done nothing amiss the thief probably more than any other human being appreciated the righteousness of Christ at first hand can you imagine seeing the death of Christ from just what a meter away two meters perhaps he certainly knew that the Lord Jesus Christ had human nature see the Son of God struggling for breath he knew that Christ would be resurrected because he knew that he could see Christ was dying obvious if we might use that word and yet he knew that Christ would come back in his kingdom so he knew there would be a resurrection of Christ and he knew that he could benefit from this remember me for good now he knew that he was a sinner and he as we'll go on to develop he knew that his salvation was by pure grace that he really shouldn't be saved because he was a sinner that's why he was where he was and he threw himself on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the only way to describe it he threw himself on that grace now we shouldn't think when he took a chance because he had more faith than to think well I'll, I'll take a chance he really did believe he knew the second coming he knew the judgment scene he knew the kingdom would be established on the earth today you'll be with me I can tell you today you will be with me in paradise and as we said paradise really refers to a beautiful garden on the earth an allusion back to the garden of Eden so he had the basic idea of the promise in Eden of paradise being restored through the bruising of the seed of the woman he knew that he had to be his salvation was through being identified with Christ there he was being crucified with Christ dying with Christ which is the basic idea of baptism although of course the objection that the thief wasn't baptized I can never really see as valid because the command to be baptized wasn't given until uh, afterwards so the fact is that the thief was the Christadelphian hanging there this man, this brother understood these basic things he, under- he was in Israel he was by his birth and circumcision he was in covenant with God he knew, would have known the promises to Abraham he was one of Abraham's seed already and yet this man as we've said is a representation of us so there he was he knew all these things and he'd sinned we don't know what he'd done but he'd done something or other probably a whole way of life he'd slipped he'd gone back into the world 
And now, at the very last minute, this was a deathbed repentance, no doubt about that. He brings all these things that he knew in theory into focus, into practice. Those words of Job come to mind. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. And I'm sure as many of us here who have been through that same thing, knowing all these doctrines, these abstract principles, locked up in our brain cells. And in times of crisis, these things come to live, don't they, in our lives. The fact that Christ will come. The fact there will be a judgment. The fact that Christ really was of our nature. That he was our representative. The fact that our own nature is like a roaring lion or whatever. These abstract principles which been drummed into us, thankfully, from childhood. They mean nothing until the circumstances of life bring them out, don't they? You see that in the thief. He knew all this. And yet it wasn't until right at the end that he started to do something about it, that he was forced to do something about it. If I just look back in Matthew 27, verse 44, a detail which, until recently, I, I'd completely missed. Matthew 27 verse 44 the crowd is there hurling abuse and we can imagine what sort of language they were using in Aramaic verse 44 the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth now there's the son of God there covered in blood and spittle this matchless spirituality evident from him the centurion looked at him and said surely this was a righteous man and turned away the thieves, both of them, the thieves also started to throw this at Christ. It says on the other record that they, they railed on him. They cast it in his teeth. And you know where we get that idiom, a kick in the teeth from? always strikes me as a particularly unpleasant idiom, a kick in the teeth. But it's, it's from this. They threw it in his teeth. That's what those thieves were doing. This one thief particularly that we're thinking about, our brother. Abusing Christ. The thieves also. In other words, they were just like the rest of them. Of course, the Bible is written in the acceptable language. The real force of what these people were saying obviously doesn't quite come over. But we can imagine the sort of things they were saying. Men in their agony would have very easily sided with those crowds hurling that abuse, expressing the anger that must have been in the souls of those two men. And yet, we can sort of imagine this man slowly calming down. The other guy would have probably carried on. Then one of them calms down a bit. He would have remembered his earlier life. He would have remembered these principles up here that he'd known. And he now knew that he had very little time left. He probably thought, well, I could have repented, but uh, it's too late now, isn't it? Then he would have thought, yeah, but I've added insult to injury. I've blasphemed and I've mocked the Son of God. So we can imagine him feeling silent, hating himself. Remember it says the thieves were crucified next to Jesus. Next to Jesus. And he was in the midst certainly implies they were very close I mean this man's faith was just extraordinary because 
you must have thought, well, even now, after I've just been swearing at the Son of God, after I've lived a life that's turned away from all the principles that I've believed, I think he will still give me, even now, forgiveness. Even now, he'll give me a place in the kingdom. But he didn't say that first of all. He turns around and says to the other man, if Jesus was in the midst, he'd have had to sort of speak past Jesus, if you see what I mean. Dost not thou fear God? He says to the other man. And then, in other words, he, that thief was thinking about the day of judgment. He says to the other one, look, don't you fear God? You know, we shouldn't be saying this because what he's implying is it's going to be a day of judgment. Don't you see that? Don't you fear God? And then, and it's almost impossible to imagine the nervous tone of his voice. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Remember me for good. Now that to me is an absolute spiritual pinnacle. That a man who'd been cursing at the Son of God, who'd lived a whole life going away from the truth, as we would call it, could reach such a, a pinnacle of faith in his dying moments. I mean, we'd have all thought, well, well come on, you know, you've had your life, Duncan, or whatever. You, you, you can't just turn around at the end of it and just get forgiven. You know, that's altogether too convenient. And yet this man had the faith to do that. He really did believe in salvation by grace. He had the strongest faith in being in the kingdom and in the grace of God. Of course, he was stimulated, no doubt, by the vision of the Son of God dying next to him. And that should be, if we can begin to imagine it in our mind's eye, should be a similar stimulation to us. Remember me for good, he says. Remember me. It's no accident that four times Nehemiah says that. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Samson also says it at the end of his life. Remember when he's there chained between the pillars? Judges 16, he says, Remember me, oh my God, only this once. And I wonder if he felt a similarity, a connection with Samson when he says, Remember me, oh God. That's just what Samson says. Remember me, oh my God, only this once. And yet, getting back to Nehemiah, who says, Remember me, O God, four times. I wonder if uh, he particularly had Nehemiah in mind. Nehemiah 13, verse 22, Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. Remember me, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. Now, it goes further than that. We're running out of time, otherwise we'd look at it. But in Nehemiah 13, verse 19, just four verses before, when did Nehemiah say that? It says that he was standing outside the gates of Jerusalem. You remember when he was trying to stop these people from trading on the Sabbath? He was standing outside the gates of Jerusalem, as it, and I quote, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath. There was Nehemiah standing outside the gates of Jerusalem as it began to get dark and as the Sabbath was coming on. And he says, Remember me, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. There's the thief crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. The sun was starting to go down, coming on to the Sabbath. Exactly the same time, he says, Remember me, O my God. So it seems to me that that thief, his mind was full of the Old Testament. He was going back. 
perhaps to his childhood stories back there in the synagogue school. Nehemiah, Samson, it all came back to him. And of course he was crucified next to the Son of God, who as we know his mind on the cross was full of scripture. Just like I'd suggest that thief was. So, the thief was motivated to have such a high level of faith by quietly observing the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is what ought to motivate us. That is what ought to give us a a sure faith that we will be in the kingdom. And if we were a community that was comprised of individuals who who believed for sure that we would be in the kingdom, we'd be a very different community. Of course, I know we don't know in the sense that we may lose our faith tomorrow or next week. I I appreciate that. Surely what we can say, though, is that if Christ comes now, I believe that by grace I'll be in the kingdom. What happens tomorrow, I don't know. But surely we should be able to have that sort of confidence. And yet, we don't always. Because, as I say, the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in his time of dying is not central in our thoughts as the New Testament implies it should be. We sing that hymn, don't we? Gethsemane, can we forget? The implication of that hymn seems to be, oh, well, you know, Lord, we couldn't possibly forget what you did in Gethsemane. Gethsemane, can we forget? Yeah, sure. Day by day, even week by week. The the, the passion, the tragedy of it, the the intensity of his love for us, because as I said, it's, it's for us that he did it. Fundamentally, I don't think going out for his own salvation, but fundamentally for us. Gethsemane, can we forget? Thine agony, thy bloody sweat? Yeah, we do. And we know it. And so the Lord Jesus said those wonderful words in response to that man's faith. Verily I stand to thee today. I can tell you right now, you will be with me in paradise. And so, that thief would have entered that very small group of people who were assured that they would be in the kingdom. Now we know that the Lord Jesus died abnormally quickly. Says they, when they came to Jesus and they saw he was dead already, they didn't break his legs. Pilate marveled he had died so soon. So the thief would have seen Christ die. Presumably he was alive after the death of Christ. He died a bit later. And so we can see that man suffering more and more, I guess, physically. And yet, those words of Paul are so true uh, in Corinthians that we looked at. But as the sufferings of Christ abounded, Corinthians 1, so our consolation, our comfort also abounded. And so if that man really was a symbol of us, well we see surely the sort of pattern that in a sense all of us are going through. Knowing those principles, these basic statements, these elements of our faith, and yet going away from these things, and yet being inspired by the love of Christ for us, by his example, by his death above all things, and by the certainty of the hope that we'll be in the kingdom. So, you can see as time went on, the other man would have got increasingly bitter, angry, as time went on. And that other man, as his agonies, with agonies which we can't begin to go into, because we don't, we've never been crucified, but we've never seen anyone anywhere near it. 
as his agonies increased in his life, yet also the comfort abounded. That's what Paul's saying. But if we suffer with him, then the comfort increases. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things in our Christadelphian experience, to meet elderly brethren and sisters who've carried the cross, and you can see that the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of the truth, the comfort of the hope of the kingdom, is so big in their lives because of their sufferings. It's just so true. It's like an equation in mathematics. The more you suffer, the more you're going to be comforted. And that is really the road that every one of us is on. It's a fantastic thing, isn't it, brothers and sisters? But this is our life, carrying a cross in whatever way it might be. Probably, maybe not so much physically, but in one way or another, we're all doing it. We all know that. That's why we're in the truth. That's why we've been called. And yet, as we go on, it gets more difficult. It does get more difficult. There's no, there shouldn't be any denial of that. We should all realize that. It gets more complicated. Why can't life be simple? Why can't the walk to the kingdom just be simple? And it seems for all of us we're going through this. It's being more and more difficult and complicated. And yet the comfort, if we are really carrying the cross, the comfort abounds. And as I say, all this is brought together in the, the mind of that man who we believe is intended to be our representative. we've uh, gone over our time in terms of comments um, what we'll do is have a break for say 15 minutes and then have our next session, uh, the last session of the day will be uh, open for comments and questions and uh, you may like to, uh, to keep uh, any big comments that you have until then although uh, hopefully in the next session I'll try and finish a little bit earlier we might be able to have time for uh, one or two other comments, so let's have a break for 15 minutes